good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome uh, to the LSC for this evening's event. My name is Karen Smith. I'm a professor of international uh, relations here at uh, the LSC. I'm very pleased uh, to welcome Christia Freeland to the LSC today. She is from Canada, which I think you are going to hear much more about uh, during the, um, uh, the session. She's a very well-known uh, journalist, actually, and uh, editor. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Financial Times, but she held a number of, of um, positions with the Financial Times, including managing uh, editor, editor of FT.com, um, and uh, Moscow Bureau Chief, UK News Editor, you name it. Uh, she was, um, uh, worked quite a bit uh, for the Financial uh, Times, as well as other uh, uh, newspapers, including the Washington Post and The Economist. Uh, she is the Canadian Federal Minister for International Trade. She was first elected of the, as a member of Parliament for Toronto Centre in November 2013 and then re-elected in, in October 2015, and she's been a uh, trade, uh, trade minister since 2014. 2015, is that correct? Yeah, yes, yeah. Um, she studied at Harvard uh, and then at Oxford. We, we forgive you for that. <laughs> and if anyone went to St. Anthony's, hi. Um, and uh, she's the author of the most recent uh, book, is Plutocrats, uh, The Rise of the New Global Super Rich and the Fall of Everyone Else. And I, don't, I would highly recommend actually watching her TED Talk um, on this uh, topic. It's quite... Um, Quite a good and informative, and, and somewhat, um, somewhat, I must say, sobering, uh, sobering talk. But I recommend uh, looking at that. Um, so she's here to discuss a growing a trade the progressive uh, way. Uh, so in a world of uh, growing protectionist trends, how can trade respond to the concerns of people who feel left behind? And certainly that is a very live issue uh, in the UK. Um, I think I'm uh, pleased to see so many people here when uh, the news feed, <laughs> everybody's news feed for the past two weeks has been in hyperdrive. I mean, there's you know, nothing like being glued to, to what is happening on the news. I certainly, I certainly have been um, in the wake of Brexit. So I think her, her talk is extremely uh, timely. Um, and... Uh, uh, we look forward uh, to hearing much more about a 21st century inclusive uh, trade uh, agenda. Uh, for those who are tweeting uh, this evening, uh, I'm told the hashtag for today's event is LSE Trade. Uh, I just ask you to put your phones on silent so that we are not uh, disturbed. There will be uh, audio and video podcast available if the technicalities go smoothly, um, uh, and those will be available uh, afterwards, hopefully. Uh, after she speaks, uh, there will be plenty of opportunity for question and questions from uh, the audience. So I will hand over now to you, Christia. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Karen. Um, I'm going to stand up at the podium because uh, even behind the podium, you won't see very much of me, but if I'm sitting down, no one will see me at all. Okay. Um, well, thank you very much, uh, Karen, for that kind introduction. Uh, thanks, everyone, for being here tonight. Um, a talk about trade on a Thursday night in July when it has finally turned sunny. Um, I thought there would be three or four people and we could have tea or something. Um, so I'm, I'm really pleased and grateful to everyone who is here. Uh, thanks, Karen, for mentioning my trade talk. Um, this has been... This is sort of the last leg of a round-the-world trade trip, which began in Shanghai 
and actually one of the Chinese government officials who I saw, um, the Chinese really do their research carefully. They are extremely well briefed. And after a few minutes, uh, he brought out a little picture of my TED Talk, and he said, I've watched your TED Talk. Are you a communist? <laughs> um, I'm not. I'm a liberal, but I am concerned about income inequality, which you'll hear more about in a moment. Um, and, uh, you know, since we're on China, you know, they say, may you live in interesting times. Certainly, I have arrived in London in a very interesting time. I had supper last night with a bunch of my friends from the Financial Times, uh, and I had such a yearning to go back with them across Southwark Bridge to the newsroom and, you know, start putting some stories together. A lot is happening. Uh, au nom du Premier ministre Justin Trudeau et du gouvernement du Canada, je présente mes salutations les plus chaleureuses à nos amis et partenaires ici en Angleterre et à LSE. Je tiens également à vous remercier de tout cœur de votre incroyable hospitalité ainsi que de votre invitation à prendre la parole devant vous ce soir. À titre du ministre du Commerce international du Canada, j'aimerais vous faire part de mes réflexions sur certaines difficultés actuelles euh, que rencontre le libre-échange partout dans le monde et proposer des secteurs où nous pouvons promouvoir un programme commercial plus progressiste qui aidera à surmonter ces difficultés. I'm going to switch to English now, don't worry. Um, we are a bilingual country, so it's important for us to speak in both of our official languages um, whenever cabinet ministers speak. Uh, I did that when I was at the Bundestag in April, and after a few sentences, the translator was waving wildly <laughs> from the booth, and he said in my ear, I can only do German-English. Um, uh, so I, I want to start with the obvious, um, which is this is obviously a complex, fraught moment uh, for the European Union and for the UK. Um, speaking for Canada, um, I'm confident, we're confident um, that our British partners, our European partners will work things out. Um, and. I think it's important to say when we're here a couple of things. Um, some things aren't going to change, no matter how that relationship gets worked out. And one of those things that won't change is the very strong transatlantic partnership between Canada and the EU. Uh, in fact, that partnership is stronger than it ever has been and is growing ever stronger. Um, we are in the final stage of a trade agreement, a terrific trade agreement that I'll talk about more with the EU called CETA, and our partnership with Britain. Um, that has been a strong relationship literally for centuries. Uh, it's a very strong relationship today. It's a strong economic relationship. Uh, it is for Canada on a country-by-country -country basis our third largest, tra largest trading relationship. Um, following only the U.S. and China. And I think it's important to note, and you know, certainly for, for me personally, um, that it's a relationship that is also based very much on human ties. We're not just friends, we are quite literally cousins. So speaking for me personally, um, as Karen has already said, I studied and worked uh, in Britain for many years. 
But on top of that, my father was born in Britain. Uh, my grandfather was uh, one of the Canadian boys uh, who enlisted and came to fight in the Second World War. And while he was here, he met a great young woman from Glasgow who became my grandmother. Uh, and my father was born shortly afterwards. They got married first. Um, <laughs> and my husband is British. Uh, he is from Leicestershire. So Brexit actually was not the most important British event in my household. It was <laughs> Leicester City. Uh, I have a six-year-old son, and so my house is literally, in Toronto, is literally a shrine to Jamie Vardy. Um, Claudio Ranieri, also a very important guy, and Schmeichel, because my son is very interested in playing in goal. Uh, and one of my three children is born in Britain. My 11-year-old uh, daughter was born here. So it's a really close, intimate relationship, and I am not uncommon among Canadians in having that. And, you know, I really do want to say for myself personally, from our country, as trade minister, from our government, we are really confident that that relationship is going to endure. Uh, we're your friends, and we're here to support you. Um, anyone today... Um, without even looking at that news feed that Karen is addicted to, uh, can see that we are living in a complicated time, particularly when it comes to issues of trade. Uh, I was on a panel recently at a conference in Montreal, uh, and one of the panelists, a woman who's the head of the French uh, business, or the French version of the CBI, uh, described it as an age of demondialisation. And I, I think, that, I think that's, that's a good way of putting it. Um, we are living in a time when, in many countries in the Western industrialized world, maybe in most countries in the Western industrialized world, there is a tremendous popular backlash against international trade, against immigration, against what you might call the open society. And what I wanted to do tonight is share some thoughts on how we are grappling with that and I would even say pushing back against that in Canada. I wanted to start by saying, however, that I'm not talking about this, I'm not approaching this from a position of Canadian smugness. I don't want to leave you with the impression that it's perfect in Canada, that we have it all figured out, that there's something in our air or in our beautiful rocky mountains that kind of immunizes us against this. Um, I, after all, in addition to being a cabinet minister, as is the case here in Britain, I'm also a member of parliament. I'm an MP for Toronto. And my city not too long ago had a mayor, when asked had he smoked crack cocaine, said he didn't think so, but he couldn't say for sure because he had been in a drunken stupor at the time of the alleged crack cocaine smoking. That was Rob Ford, and he was elected by popular mandate in Canada's largest city. Um, I also live in a country where just last summer, less than a year ago, uh, the government of the time, happily defeated in the election, but the government of the time, um, introduced something called the Barbaric Cultural Practices Hotline. Um, which allowed Canadians who noticed barbaric cultural practices in their neighborhoods um, to call up and let the authorities know. You can imagine the Twitter campaign that inspired from some people, like, is barbecuing a bar barbaric cultural practice? Um, but that wasn't obviously the point of it. So these are forces that we're not immune to in Canada um, that we're really, really concerned about. And 
What I would say is, at the moment in Canada, we do feel we still have a strong national consensus, in, a strong national, even cross-party consensus, around what I would call the open society, around a belief in a multicultural, diverse society, which is open to immigration, uh, around the idea that being plugged into the global economy for Canada is essential and actually helps middle-class people. So how do we get to having that consensus and what can we do to maintain it? Uh, I want to suggest four things. For us in Canada, for our government, this consensus actually starts with domestic economic policies. Um, Karen mentioned that I, I, before I became a politician, I still have struggle with that sentence, I am a politician, but I have to get over it. Um, before I became a politician, uh, the last book I wrote was called Plutocrats, The Rise of the New Global Super Rich and the Fall of Everybody Else. And I think the title tells you a lot about my concerns around the hollowed out middle class and income inequality. And I actually met our now Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who at the time was not even the leader of the Liberal Party. He was a member of Parliament and candidate for the leadership at the Toronto launch of that book. That was the first time I met him. Uh, and the themes of that book, this issue of a hollowed-out middle class, is why he invited me to quit my job and become a politician, and is very, very central to how our party looks at our job in government. We see this issue of income inequality, of a hollowed-out middle class, as really the core problem that we as a government need to solve for. So what have we done about it? We, we really think to do our jobs and also to have support for the open society policies that we think are essential for a prosperous Canada going forward, the first thing we need to do is support our middle class and the people who are striving to join it. And doing that has been our governing priority in our first months in office. Uh, we raised very significantly the Canada Child Benefit. That is a tax-free benefit paid to Canadian families with children. And we targeted it much more aggressively so people at the top of the income distribution don't get it anymore to leave us more money for people at the bottom. Um, effectively, for Canada's poorest children, or the checks don't go to the kids themselves, they go obviously to the caregivers, um, the Canada Child Benefit is now sufficiently generous that it amounts to a guaranteed annual income for Canadian children. And if you were to ask me what I am most proud of that our government has done, um, I'm very proud of a lot of the work we're doing on trade, but the single thing I'm most proud of is that. It's great to be able to say as a country there is a guaranteed income for our kids. Uh, the second thing we did is make our tax uh, structure much more redistributive. Uh, we cut taxes on people in the middle, and we paid for that by raising them quite literally on the 1%. Um, because we think income inequality is real, and we think it's the job of government policy to lean against it. And then finally, what we've done just recently 
is make significant changes to the pension system, which over time will significantly increase pension benefits, particularly for people in the middle. As our pension system currently works, if you're at the very, very bottom, I'm not saying things are great, but there are supports. The people who don't have enough are really that sort of lower middle. Um, and we have enhanced the pension system so that in the future, those benefits will be more significant. And that's a change that is not going to make any difference to anyone who I think will ever vote for me. Um, it's something very much for the future. Um, but it does mean that my children already have a lot more security. And that was very important for us because we really worry about the ways in which today's economy is a place where you know, the older generation has kind of eaten the younger one. And that security for young people for their whole lives has been really important. Um, this sort of focus on supporting the middle class um, and on income inequality for me is directly connected to the open society agenda and to the trade agenda. So much so that when I'm speaking to Canadian business groups, and I spoke today at a lunch organized by the Canada-UK uh, Chamber of Commerce, I start with that. And it's not a message business groups, even nice Canadian ones, um, are necessarily accustomed to hearing. Um, but what I say to them is, you really, if, if you want, and we do feel quite lucky in Canada right now that we don't have this angry backlash. We still do have strong public support for the open society. And what I say to our business groups is, if you want to maintain that, you have to support this economic agenda for supporting the middle class. And so far that is an argument that has been successful. As an MP, I'm the member of parliament for a constituency. We call them ridings in Canada. Um, which is actually a word that comes from the old Saxon. Um, people here who are political scientists or even follow politics closely will know about the Yorkshire ridings. So apparently there were Yorkshiremen who came to Canada and took the word riding with them um, because we call all of our constituency ride, constituencies ridings. That's just a little Canada trivia footnote for you. Um, but um, my constituency or riding is called University Rosedale and Probably the London equivalent would be sort of Mayfair, Kensington, maybe with a little bit of kind of intellectual Hampstead thrown in there, and also Chinatown. Um, so those are the kind of people I represent. I spent last summer knocking on doors. Uh, this economic plan to support the middle class, including making our tax system more redistributive, was part of our election platform. We were very open about that. And I knocked on doors, and some people said, why should I vote for you? I will have to pay much higher taxes if I do. And I made the arguments that I've just been making with you. And I won my riding by more than 50% in a four-party race. So you can make that argument even with the 1%. And I think it's important to do that. It's important if you want, if you believe inclusive prosperity needs to be a core part of your agenda, I think you have to make the argument with everybody. The second thing that for Canada is really important about maintaining this support for the open society is how we do immigration. And I really believe that these two pillars of open society, 
being open to the global economy and being open to immigrants and immigration are intimately connected. And, and people do too. So often the backlash kind of interweaves both of those things. So, you know, in Canada, we're a country that really likes immigrants. Um, we, every year, have as many immigrants come to Canada as come to Britain. And our population is barely half of Britain's. So it's relative to our population. It's many more. Um, overall, the goal of our party is to increase that number a bit. And generally, when we have questions in the House about immigration, our, immigra our immigration ministers get criticized if they haven't hit the target, i.e. if they have underperformed on number of immigrants. Um, Toronto, my city, has, is more than 50% foreign-born at this point. And on the Syrian refugees, which is, was a big campaign issue for our party, uh, we promised during the election campaign that we would bring 25,000 Syrian refugees to Canada. And these are refugees who are on a path to citizenship. The day they arrive in Canada, they are permanent residents. Um, we have now hit nearly 29,000. And our immigration minister said recently that he believes by the end of the year we will be between 35 and 50,000. And again there, this is a policy that enjoys public support. Uh, as a constituency MP, when I do my constituency days, um, the single biggest complaint I get is, where are my refugees? And you may wonder why my constituents have their own refugees. Um, it's because we have a system in Canada which was developed during the Vietnamese boat people crisis when we brought in another big wave of refugees of private sponsorship of refugees. So when refugees come to Canada, there are two paths. The government can sponsor refugees and take care of them financially for their first year to set them up, or private citizens can get together and raise enough money to take care of a refugee family for its first year. So many Canadians have done this that they're now really complaining because they're all set up. They have the apartment, they've furnished it, they have food in the fridge, they've set up a job, and they don't have their refugee yet. And this really may seem laughable, but I, like, I get angry people coming and they say, like, we've sorted this out. We sometimes, like, sometimes you get your connection with your refugee when they're still in the camps before they come, so people are talking on Skype. Um, it's a real issue for us. So, why is that? Why do we like our immigrants so much? Um, part of it is actually uh, the luck of geography and that we do control our borders. So we're fortunate in that we're surrounded by oceans and then the United States. Um, that means that we can... <laughs> that came out a little bit wrong, but um, we can talk about that going forward. Um, it, it does mean that we really decide who comes to Canada, and that includes the refugees. And, and we're very aware and sort of humble when talking with Europeans or countries like Turkey that don't have that luxury of choice. It makes a difference and it makes it easier when Canadians see that the government is sending a plane to the refugee camps, choosing people, picking them up, and bringing them to their new home. So that's, that's luck. Um, but I would also say we're good at and we pay a lot of attention to and focus a lot on integrating 
the immigrants, including the refugees who come to Canada. And um, part of what we believe is central to that process is a policy that was put in place not by my Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, but by his father, Pierre Trudeau, a policy of multiculturalism. Um, we really believe in Canada uh, that our diversity is our strength. We don't think we're strong despite our diversity. We think we're strong because of it. And we very much encourage and embrace the idea of people staying in contact with the countries they or their parents or even grandparents came from. And just to give you a little example of how that works, this, the policy of multiculturalism was first actually introduced at a conference of the Ukrainian-Canadian Committee. Uh, and I happen to be Ukrainian-Canadian myself. Um, I was born in Canada, but I grew up speaking Ukrainian. Uh, my children were born, one of them in Britain, but not born in Ukraine, obviously. They speak Ukrainian, too. And I was in Ukraine this week with the Prime Minister to sign a free trade agreement. We went to Yavoriv in western Ukraine, where Canadian trainers, instructors, 200 of them, are instructing the Ukrainian soldiers. And we were sort of talking to the commander and asking, you know, how's it going? How does that cultural mix work? And the commander said, well, one of the things that has made it easier is seven of our 200 speak Ukrainian. And the prime minister said, wow, how did that happen? Did you, like, sort of specially advertise for soldiers who speak Ukrainian? And the commander said, no, it was just, like, of the 200, seven happened to speak Ukrainian. Uh, and the prime minister said, wow, like, I bet, you know, you'd probably find a few of them speak Vietnamese and probably a few of them speak Arabic and a few of them speak Urdu and so forth. And that really is how Canada works. And we think that it helps us um, in being a society that's proud to be an immigrant society and continue to be. A third thing, um, and now we're coming to some more trade-specific issues, um, a third area when it comes to trade that I think is so important is it is essential to build a trade policy from the ground up that is about supporting middle-class jobs and incomes. I, obviously, I'm a trade minister, so I generally hang out in very pro-trade circles. You know, I spend a lot of time talking to our business community that is rah-rah trade. I spend a lot of time talking to other trade ministers or our trade policy wonks. These are pro-trade communities overall. And there tends to be in these circles some hand-wringing, you know, a lot more than hand-wringing, uh, some soul-searching about the backlash against globalization. And the most common, the most comfortable response is to say, it's all about communication. You know, blame the press secretary. Um, if only this disinformation weren't out there, if only people knew the truth, if only people listened more to the experts, everything would be okay. I think that is a, a really wrong-headed response. I think it is really important for us as the people doing trade to understand there are some legitimate reasons why people can be concerned about trade agreements and to really focus on building trade agreements from the ground up that address those concerns. Uh, some ways that we're doing that 
are to focus a lot in our trade policy, both in the agreements and in how we promote the agreements. And promote, I don't mean advertise, I mean make them real on small and medium-sized businesses. Um, and that actually is something that the 21st century globalized technology-driven economy really makes possible. You know, it may have been the case 30, 40, 50 years ago that international trade was something that only the multinational corporations did. That's even where the word comes from, that sort of era. If I say multinational corporation to you, you think of a great global behemoth. But nowadays, you can be a multinational company from day one as a very, very small enterprise. A recent example that brought this home to me very vividly is a company called Shopify, which is an Ottawa-based startup we Canadians are very proud of. It's one of the unicorns, has reached a more than billion-dollar valuation. And Toby Lutke, an immigrant, by the way, he's from Germany, uh, told me that he got his first, he's the founder of it, he got his first Canadian customer a year after founding the company. So you can really start to be part of the global trading economy from day one. And it's really important for us as the people of trade to understand that, to build the agreements that way, to communicate that. Um, my other personal favorite example about how trade is, for, is must be for small, medium-sized businesses is my father, um, the war baby born in Dorchester. Uh, he went home, obviously, with my grandmother. He was a baby. Uh, back to the family homestead, which is in Peace River in northern Alberta. And my father still farms there. Uh, he's 72. He farms about 6,000 acres, mostly canola and oil seed, but also wheat, barley. And about 90% of what my dad grows is exported. Uh, he told me when I was appointed, when he called me up after I was appointed trade minister, it was all a closely held secret. So there was the big reveal in the governor general's in Rideau Hall. Um, and he said to me, he was very happy he was crying. Um, but he said, the best part is that you're the trade minister. He says, now I can't even pay for my own beers in town because everybody loves trade. And they say, get your girl to sign more trade deals for us. Our farmers are very, because they know, right? They, they sell their stuff. Um, a, a second area in the trade agenda that our government has been pursuing really aggressively is addressing the concern that people have, I think these are very legitimate concerns, around the right to regulate, um, around the right of democratically elected governments to regulate, particularly, and I think con these concerns can be particularly strong in areas like labor rights, the environment, the public sector. I think these concerns are really legitimate. Uh, and so what we've done with CETA, uh, our free trade agreement with the EU, is go right at those. And the investment chapter in CETA is a, I would say, radical uh, new way to do investment chapters in which the right of governments to regulate is absolutely enshrined. It has preeminence. And in which the arbitration of investment disputes is more transparent and more independent, I believe, than in any other trade agreement. And, and it's important to do that. I think that it makes it a better trade deal. 
coming to an end now, and I just want to say, you know, I can't think of a better place than the LSE to defend the open society. Um, I actually was here three years ago talking about plutocrats, which in some ways was maybe the first chapter of these arguments. Um, but the LSE has been engaged in this debate for much, much longer. Um, it was, after all, Karl Popper, who in 1946 founded your Department of Philosophy, Logic, and the Scientific Method. Is it still called that? Um, and he, of course, the year before, had written the great book, The Open Society and Its Enemies. Um, it's one of my favorite books. I think it's very important. Um, and in that book, he warned, if we are not prepared to defend a tolerant society against the onslaught of the intolerant, then the tolerant will be destroyed, and tolerance with them. I am a big believer that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I think that today, um, the open society is again under threat. I think that threat is real, and it's very important for those of us who believe in the open society, and I very much count myself and Canadian government policy among them, um, to figure out what's going wrong uh, and to have a strategy for addressing it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It seems to me that we have a lot to learn from Canada, actually. Um, a lot of good uh, lesson learning uh, there uh, that would, um, particularly in these days and times, I, was, um, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant myself, and uh, some of the uh, anti-immigrant discourse can be extremely um, uh, distressing, actually. Um, so I, I do want to focus a bit more on the international side of this. I mean, that's, where I, that's the angle I uh, come from. Um, and a lot of what you're talking about is what a, a domestic government, a particularly enlightened domestic government in, in, in this particular case, is, is doing within sort of to try to adjust to, um, to sort of a globalized world. But what about the international side? And I was wondering how you think international institutions should develop or could develop um, to embody some of this, to, to protect the open society. Um, I mean, I didn't hear World Trade Organization, didn't hear, you know, Doha Rahman, nothing. And I'm just wondering, to what extent does your, this kind of vision of protecting the open society depend solely on sort of domestic governments trying to do what they can in bilateral or perhaps some smaller multilateral regions or areas and then versus what can we do at the international level globally within institutions? Um, so I think it's a great question, and I'm a big believer in multilateralism. Um, I focused mostly on the domestic agenda, um, partly because Vincent Garneau, who is my legislative aide, was flashing me pages saying it's time to shut up. Um, that is his job. I don't hold it against you, Vincent, not for very long. Um, but also because actually, you know, one of the connections that I think... Um, broken may be too strong a word, but is far too rarely made, is between domestic policy and trade policy. I spend a huge amount of my time with trade ministers and sort of the trade thinking community. And because we have these silos about how government works, 95% um, of the discourse is around the multilateral stuff 
And I think far too little attention is paid to what you need to be doing at home to make this work. Um, and to give you an example of that, I was just in Shanghai. I was at the G20 trade ministers meeting, and uh, the refugee crisis came up. Uh, and there was a debate about what it was actually raised by the, by Turkey, um, which of course is you know suffering hugely. Um, and there was a whole debate about whether it was legitimate for trade ministers in our statement to have anything about the refugee crisis. Um, Canada was very much on the side of saying, yes, this, this is a trade issue too. And, and I think if we fail to make those connections, we can have the smartest, most brilliant multilateral system that will just find itself, you know, like this hot air balloon cut off from the domestic constituencies that you need to be supportive. So that's why the focus. But on multilateralism, I'm a huge believer. It's really important. Um, it's really, really hard. Um, I was in Nairobi in December for the WTO ministerial. It was really, really hard. I mean, it's hard enough to do politics domestically in a huge multilateral like that. It's really, really hard. Um, but it is essential. And, you know, I will tell you one of the things, like, organizations like the WTO can seem like, uh, you know, the evil enemy institutions representing the global economic order. Um, for a country like Canada, which is, yes, a member of the G7, you know, yes, the 11th sized economy in the world, but there are only 36 million of us, the WTO is an essential institution in defending ourselves in the global economy. And we had a real-life example of that in December, sort of six weeks after we formed government, where we had taken a case uh, against the United States, a pretty significant country to be bumping up against, um, which had been um, practicing um, measures that were discriminating against our producers. We took it to the WTO. We won. The WTO authorized us to impose countervailing sanctions, countervailing tariffs of up to a billion dollars, and the U.S. repealed that discriminatory legislation. Um, that is an outcome that would not have been possible without the WTO dispute resolution mechanism. And so I think it's really important um, for people to understand that we need the multilateral system, and actually the real winners of multilateralism are the middle-sized and smaller countries, you know, which is why Canada has historically been such a believer in multilateralism and why our government, you know, when we say Canada is back, a big part of what we mean is we are back at the multilateral table. All right, I'm going to uh, open the floor for questions. I'm, qu I'm quite sure there will be a lot of questions on seat and Brexit, so I haven't brought that in uh, yet. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that it won't only be Brexit, even though I'm obsessed with the issue myself. Um, uh, but I will take, uh, shall I take a round of questions? Sure, that, yeah. I no, that? no, I don't mind at all. Okay, all right. Um, we'll start over there. Hello, thank you. Uh, my oh, name is you just introduce yourself. Of course. Yeah. My name is Anne-Marie Levesque. I am a consultant at Oregon Associates here in London. Um, well, first of all, thank you very much for, uh, for your talk. Um, I was wondering if maybe, because um, I think you made a very compelling case for 
um, the impact of trade policies, maybe internally, so on addressing income equality, for example, within Canada. Uh, but I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about what Canada is doing um, for maybe disenfranchised or more vulnerable people living in the countries that Canada does trade with. Um, so what is Canada doing or what is um, your government's policy on, for example, uh, waiving or building in um, human rights or labor rights commitments um, into trade deals? Thank you. Can we go, can we go over here? Is that okay? On this side? Yes, sorry. <laughs> Ines, sorry. <laughs> All right, he's wearing the blue striped shirt. Hello, I'm Charles Small. I'm a small business owner uh, running a consultancy specializing in political risk. And uh, you've probably guessed I'm going to ask a political question then. Um, and it's about Brexit. Uh, <laughs> as there is this, this brilliant uh, Canada-EU free, free trade agreement, presumably there's, there's going to be a similarly modeled UK-Canada uh, free trade agreement. And uh, do you have a sense at the moment, still in these early days, on the time frame it would take to finalize that, can it, can it be expedited and uh, be ready to go by the time the UK leaves the EU? Thank you very much. Can I do one more? Sure. All right. Yeah. Okay, right here in the front with the jacket. <clears throat> My name is Wolfgang Deckers. Um, before I came, I went on the website of Open Democracy, a website I would assess as left of center. Um, and uh, I looked under... Uh, Canada EU trade and it said that there, was an art, there were a number of articles there and, and one said um, there is this, and I quote that's what I'm reading, uh, it says there is this dangerous investor state dispute settlement mechanism which uh, grants big business the power to sue the British government in a private justice system I'm wondering, is this also, as you said, misinformation? And you also mentioned the term transparency. I can't see transparency at all if it's private justice. I mean, I'm a foreigner, um, but I've been here for decades. Um, and I think the British justice system is quite okay. They make mistakes sometimes, but it's quite okay. And so there is no uh, accountability as far as I see, because I could not go to a court procedure when a Canadian company or an American company which has an office in Canada, you know, sues the British government. I can't go there, nor anybody else. And of course, I'm pretty incompetent. I wouldn't want to be there anyway because I can't assess these things very well. And so, does this not lead to this inequality? One has just seen as part of the Brexit um, uh, campaign that there are these people who feel that the elites sort things out themselves. They either do that socially or politically or economically, as in this case. And so, wouldn't you agree with me that CETA is really very bad from this quote I just had? Okay, we'll take, well, I'll let you um, answer and then we'll take more, another round. Okay. Uh, so um, I might do them in opposite order, so I might start with the investment chapter. Um, I haven't read that article, so I can't say for sure, um, but I wonder whether that article is about CETA before we changed the dispute resolution mechanism. So there were significant... The agreement was finalized in principle in September 2014. Uh, we formed government in, no, uh, in November 2015, 
and we looked at CETA. Uh, we listened to some of the criticisms we were hearing in Europe and in Canada, and we, together with the EU, made significant changes to the investment dispute settlement mechanism. Um, because I actually believe quite strongly that there are problems with how the dispute settlement mechanism works in a lot of trade agreements. Um, the changes we've made are basically of two kinds. Um, one is to address the concerns, which were not sort of your principal ones here, but the concerns around the right to regulate. Because, you know, some criticisms of the dispute settlement mechanism are that it ties the hands of governments and imposes this supranational authority that does not permit them to regulate in particular areas. Um, there's the famous Philip Morris case against Australia. So very often in areas of health, the environment, uh, labor rights, uh, there have been concerns also about whether a dispute settlement mechanism could limit a government's right to have public services or could even prevent, you know, what if a government were to choose to make the public sphere bigger rather than smaller, to sort of re-nationalize. Um, we took those concerns very seriously in CETA and we have strengthened very much the right to regulate. It was previously in the preamble. We have moved that into the main body of the agreement. Uh, loss of profit in and of itself is no longer, no longer gives you recourse to the dispute settlement mechanism. Public services are explicitly protected, including renationalization. Uh, and the right of governments to regulate, particularly but not exclu exclusively, for the national interest in areas like labor and the environment are very protected. So that was not the case with CETA 1.0, but it is the case with this CETA because I share those concerns. Um, the second area, you referred to the private justice aspect of dispute settlement mechanisms. And again, I think those are legitimate concerns. So with CETA, we have proposed with the EU, I think the, the, the biggest change in how dispute settlement works since the whole idea of dispute settlement mechanisms were invented in international trade. This is a really significant departure. And there we've done three things, uh, three main things. Um, one, made the system more transparent so people will know what is being discussed. Second, and I personally think this is the biggest change, um, we have made the arbiters more independent and ethical. So currently, in many dispute settlement processes, you can be a commercial lawyer in commercial practice one day, and then you can be an arbiter in a dispute settlement case the next day, and then you can go back to commercial law afterwards. Um, academics have written quite a number of papers, you know, talking about the danger that this creates a certain bias in where the decisions go. So what we have done, we haven't done it yet because th this mechanism doesn't exist until CETA comes into force, but when CETA comes into force, there will be a roster of arbiters so you are pre-chosen to be an arbiter. 
you have to be on the roster and while you are on that roster of arbiters you cannot be in commercial practice um, moreover for the actual dispute settlement panels um, in most dispute settlement processes right now the people who sit on the panels are chosen and the, the plaintiff company gets to choose and the country gets to choose and then usually the third one is a mutual choice again there that sort of judge shopping creates some problems that I think we can all understand very quickly um, with the CETA process the arbiters from this existing roster will be chosen at random uh, and then the final thing that we've done is said and, and this mechanism hasn't been fully worked out um, but we have committed to creating an appellate system um, and that is important too so that there can be some consistency in judgments so I share the broad concerns about how dispute resolution works in all the trade deals that exist today I think we need a new more progressive approach and I believe that with CETA um, we have that new way forward um, so that's my answer to that question um, and sorry that it was a long answer but um, trade law is complicated I am not a trade lawyer or a lawyer of any kind but um, these are complicated things and I wanted to explain carefully um, okay so other questions I'll try to go more quickly um, Charles you described our brilliant Canada EU free trade agreement thank you for calling it brilliant I like to call it gold standard um, uh, and you know how that work would work with the EU um, with uh, Britain uh, a couple of comments there um, the first is that Britain is today still a member of the EU um, and Britain has pledged to us and has pledged to the EU that it will continue to support the signing and ratification of CETA um, we are working towards signing of CETA in the fall working towards ratification and entry into force early next year um, so the UK would be part of CETA when it comes into force um, and that would mean that CETA becomes one of the very many agreements that Britain as a member of the EU the very many bilateral agreements that Britain as a member of the EU is party to and as part of Britain's negotiation with the EU needs to figure out what the next steps would be so that's how we see the path forward with Britain and so much depends you know as does so so much for all of you here who I assume very many of you are British most of you probably live here you know the core issue that needs to be decided and worked out is Britain needs to figure out what its relationship with the EU will be um, and other things very much including our relationship will follow what I will say and I said it up front is our strategic partnership with the EU with Britain and our economic partnership with the EU and with Britain is strong today we very much intend for it to continue to be strong in the future and we know it will be and we will work with our partners on the technical path for making that happen um, final question on human rights in trade deals 
Um, uh, yes, I think that is something we need to think about um, in particular, and uh, sorry for focusing so much on CETA, but it's our big deal that we have right now. Um, labor rights are a big part of that, and I think that's something very important to be building into trade agreements and really focusing on. And what I would also say, and I think this is really important, is it's really important um, for countries to be helping their less prosperous trading partners to enjoy the full benefits of deals and helping them across the income distribution. So I was in Peru in Arequipa in the spring uh, for an APEC meeting, and one of the great things that made me very proud as the Canadian Trade Minister, um, uh, the Peruvian Trade Minister uh, started off her presentation by talking about a project that had been funded by the Government of Canada. One of our big marketing guys um, decided that he was sort of had made a lot of money being a big marketing guy in Canada, and so now he has a not-for-profit that helps small and medium-sized Peruvian businesses market. And so he created this great website for Peruvian artisans um, to sell their goods and help them with branding. And one of the things that he learned that I found very interesting was it's not just about creating a slick website. If you want to make international trade accessible to you know, that small Andean farmer who maybe has some alpacas and wants to weave some great ponchos, um, part of what you can do using, the, and this is a real example from this site, part of what you can do using the internet is help figure out what kind of goods will work. So he's put these guys together with um, the buyers for the big Canadian fashion stores, um, and they've told them things like, believe it or not, in Canada, what color you use that will be popular changes every year. So before you start weaving, check with the buyers and ask them, is this the year for pink or is it the year for orange? And he told these very funny stories about, like, the guys were like, really? Like, you have different colors every year? Do you vote and decide? But, you know, things like that, and it, it's a good question, actually, but things like that um, have really helped them. You know, he said it was sort of increasing sales by two or three or fourfold. I'm just going to follow up, actually, on that. Uh, just out of curiosity, does the CETA agreement have a human rights clause? Uh, just labor and environment. You don't have the traditional human rights clause? that. I'm going to ask Colin, who is the deputy negotiator. Okay, so thank you, Colin, for reminding me, for reminding me about that. So we have, we have a two-track um, relationship with the EU which we hope to be strengthening this year. There isn't a human rights clause in CETA, um, but we have a human rights clause in a strategic partnership agreement, which we are working towards signing with the EU at the same time. Okay. All right, thanks. All right, I will take another uh, round of, of three questions this time. Is there anybody? Oh. Yeah, all right. I just don't want to leave you all out. So. <laughs> Okay, I've just got, you spoke a lot about... Introduce yourself. Oh, sorry. I'm Jessica, and I'm from South Africa. Um, I've just got a question about, you spoke about the refugees, and um, that the impression I got from you was that Canada is able to choose the refugees that they take, um, which presumably, presumably you choose the so-called like best or most educated refugees 
Okay, okay, then don't worry about my... Okay, so I just wanted to find out, if you were choosing um, the like best refugees, what would happen to the others, and would they then be left to go to countries that were less equipped to deal with refugees, and would that not create more social unrest than actually solve it? Okay, another at the front there. Um, another Brexit uh, question, I'm afraid. Um, David Davis, who's just been appointed the uh, Brexit minister. I don't know about... Ask your name, please. Uh, Nico Heller. Nick. Uh, Nick. Nico. Um, David Davis, a uh, British... You know David Davis. I was just made Brexit minister. And he, he, uh, he, he basically thinks he can do the pick and choosing. And uh, Martin Schulz, the uh, president of the European Parliament, in response, came out with a very clear statement today, I believe maybe even yesterday, saying there can be no deal better than EU membership. So there can be no trade deal better than EU membership. Now, what I would like to know is, if you compare CETA with the membership of the EU, could you give me one, two, or three points where EU membership would be an advantage to Canada over CETA. Thank you. <laughs> this reminds me of the, yeah, of the blue states joining the EU and after one famous election. Uh, in the, the sort of burgundy shirt. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Daniel. I'm a Canadian student at the LSE. <laughs> my question Where is... Where are you uh, from? Which city? Uh, Toronto. Which riding? Uh, St. Paul's. Okay, that, that borders on mine. <laughs> Carolyn Bennett is your MP. Uh, my question was just about <clears throat> supply management. Mm -hmm. So um, for people that don't know, supply management is uh, quotas and tariffs for egg, dairy, and uh, poultry farmers in Canada. But it results in uh, higher prices for Canadians. And as a li living here for a year, I can certainly see that the cost of milk and uh, chicken is, is much less expensive here than it is in Canada. So my question is just, if you're talking about promoting free trade, do you also think that it'd be good to eliminate sort of the internal barriers and internal tariffs within Canada? And just your general thoughts on supply management. Thank you. Okay, should we just leave it at... Sure. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll, we'll have another round. Okay, um, so let me start with Jessica, and I preempted my answer by shaking my head. So... Um, Jessica's question was, so if Canada gets to choose its refugees, do you pick the so-called best ones? Um, and we do not. Um, our principle of choosing refugees is, um, and that sounds terrible, but our principle of um, who comes to Canada is to focus on the most vulnerable. Um, so we have had a real focus particularly on families um, and on young children. Um, one of the actual um, issues in my own writing, actually, of the refugees who people were complaining would they come or not, um, was a family where the mother was pregnant, and my constituents were really mad at me because they wanted to be sure that the baby was born in Canada. Um, fortunately, I was able to prevail upon our Minister of Immigration, and he got them here. So that, but uh, there is also a security screening. Um, which is really important. You know, our principle is very much that our presumption is the Syrian refugees are not terrorists. They are the first and greatest victims of terrorism. But I think when talking about public support for immigration, it's very important that we can assure Canadians that there is a careful and thoughtful security screening, and so that is very much a part of that process. Um, uh, on... Um, 
uh, Daniel, was it Dan? The St. Paul's guy? Um, uh, so, and I'll tell Carolyn Bennett that you were here. Um, uh, you talked about internal barriers to trade. Um, and that's a really big issue in Canada. As you may know, if you've been following the news, um, we are negotiating an agreement between the Canadian provinces on lowering the internal barriers to trade, and we're working very hard to get there. And in fact, what may be interesting for you Europeans is CETA has been a big driver of that agreement because it, between our provinces, because if we don't get that agreement done um, after CETA comes into force, we could be in the ludicrous situation that some types of trade will be easier between, for example, Ontario and France than they might be between Ontario and New Brunswick. So it's been a good driver for us, and although, of course, I realize um, the complexities of Canadian Confederation pale in comparison with Europe's, um, we do have some of that complexity to deal with. Um, on supply management, um, our government supports supply management. Um, we understand um, that this is an important support for family farms. It sort of goes back to some of that middle-class argument I've been making. Um, but it's important for our farms to modernize. Um, and part of our efforts in the agricultural space are to help our farms in that sector really modernize. Um, was it Nico? Yeah. Um, on um, CETA and EU membership. It's actually a great question um, because I'll tell you a funny story from the negotiations and Colin, who helped me out on the human rights chapter, is our deputy CETA negotiator. Um, and so he will know this story too. Um, our uh, chief negotiator of CETA on the Canadian side is a guy called Steve Verhuel. And Steve and Mauro, who was his European opposite number, um, told me that the way they negotiated CETA was before even starting, they had an agreement that when they hit an impasse, couldn't get something done, their first effort would be to try to go higher, to try to reach a deal on a deeper trading relationship. And Steve told me that there was this funny moment where they started sort of going so high that Mauro said to Steve, this is ridiculous. Maybe we should just be negotiating Canada's accession to the EU. Um, that is a true story which Steve has allowed me to tell in the European Parliament and in the Bundestag. Um, so it's a close relationship. In many ways, for us, it's closer than NAFTA uh, because it includes government procurement. But it is not as close as membership of the EU. Um, a few ways that it's not as close, um, financial services um, are not fully open. That might be particularly relevant given where we're sitting. Um, free movement of people. Um, you know, there is, uh, as part of CETA, uh, some freer movement of professionals, uh, and we think that's a good thing, but it's not free movement of people. Um, and then finally, as Daniel suggested, um, both Canada and Europe have some specific agricultural policies which have meant that while there will be freer trade in many agricultural goods, there will not be free trade in agricultural goods. Great. All right, we'll do another round of, of three in the black T-shirt right here. Can I come? <laughs> 
Um, hi there, my name is David. I'm a master's student here at LSE. Um, so I really appreciated your comments about um, looking domestically and acquiring um, domestic support for free trade agreements and a sort of social license, if you will. Um, so my question uh, revolves around China. And your government has been comparatively um, using very positive rhetoric about signing a future free trade agreement with China. Um, so my question is, um, what steps your government will take in order to ensure um, that you respond and address um, appropriate concerns that Canadians um, across the country will have in terms of environmental rights, labor rights, um, human rights, and stuff like that, um, and whether signing a free trade agreement with China would indeed be growing trade in a progressive manner? There was a, right at the back, she's got her hand up right at the back, yeah. Hi, I'm Maria Chen. I'm, I'm Canadian as well. I'm a fellow working at the LSC, and I previously did my PhD in European integration history, so you can imagine the kinds of conversations that colleagues and friends are seeking me out for. Um, so since the Brexit vote, I think a number of people, including academics, have done a lot of soul-searching, and you talked about the need to, to defend the open society, but it seems that a lot of people who are you know, economically disadvantaged in Britain um, have not benefited or feel they haven't benefited from the open society. And you, and you talked about this a bit, but I wonder, so if we don't blame communication, how, how do we respond to people who have those legitimate concerns? Okay. And then right at the front. Thank you. Um, Andrew Ricks, I'm a public health doctor. Um, uh, you've, uh, most of the examples you've given have been around small and medium business, and you touched briefly on multinationals. Um, the, what would you like to see happen from you know, sort of your more progressive approach to trade in how multinationals operate, um, and maybe also government tax systems that uh, distort trade? And, and what was the last part? And, and tax systems that may distort trade. Um, okay, lots of great questions. Um, I'll start with the China question. So on China, and I was there 10 days ago, um, uh, we have been clear. Um, I have, uh, I'll exp were you Canadian? I, th I thought you might be David. Where, do you, where are you from in Canada? Where in Toronto? Okay, not my riding. There's, usually in Canada, I'll always have lots of people from my riding in an audience. Um, so I'm going to explain for the non-Canadians here. Um, we have long had a tradition of when prime ministers appoint their cabinet, uh, they write a mandate letter to each minister. And that mandate letter tells you what you're supposed to do. Uh, with our government, for the first time, the prime minister made public his mandate letters so everyone can see what my job is. Um, including all the people in my department, which I think they really love because they definitely remind me of it a lot. Um, and the mandate letter is very clear on China. Uh, so the mandate letter talks about how one of my priorities needs to be expanding Canada's economic relationship with fast-growing emerging markets and calls out, in particular, China and India. Um, these are really big economies. They are growing really fast. My dad's canola, for example, um, most of it is sold to China. 
I think 70% uh, of the canola that China imports comes from Canada. So these are already big markets for Canada, and you know, China will be, different people argue about the date, but it will be at some time in the foreseeable future the world's largest economy. We need, as we need to, and by the way, we're also a Pacific uh, country. Uh, it takes nine hours to fly from, or ten hours to fly from Vancouver to Shanghai. We're not that far away. Um, so the economic relationship with China is very important, and we are working hard to strengthen that. Um, that is already a source of Canadian jobs, and it will be a source of more jobs. And I think it's worth also underscoring, um, and I'm speaking now very much for Canada, you know, when it comes to trade with China, we are already trading with China, and we need a relationship to support that trade that exists. Um, as it happens, that mention of canola is not accidental. We've had an ongoing trade irritant with China. This is going to get quite technical and boring for everyone whose dad is not a canola farmer, and I'm probably the only person. But it concerns dockage and something called blackleg, and what it meant was our ships were unable to unload this spring. Um, and I was personally involved in beginning to resolve that. It is not fully resolved. Um, we need to get it resolved. Um, why I mention that is when we talk about trade policy, it's important to understand that trade is something that's happening now, and a country that wants to have a strong economy needs to have a trade minister who has a strong and constantly worked on relationship with all of the trading partners because trade irritants do happen and you need to be able to be in a position to actually call people up, have a conversation and say, how do we get past that? Um, Marie talked about responding to concerns about the, was it Marie? Maria, sorry, um, about the hollowed out middle class. I, I tried to talk about that. I mean, I think, I, I guess my main point here would be to say, I think, you know, a way that people have talked about this stuff, a lot of people have talked about it for some time, is talking about winners and losers, and you have to be sure to compensate the losers. I think that's right, and you have to be aware of that with trade agreements, but I think it goes further. You know, I think if you want to have a society which is optimistic about its future and believes and that its future lies in being an open society, and by the way, for Canada, there is no alternative. There are only 36 million of us. Autarky is not an option for Canadians, and Canadians pretty much get that. But if you want people to really embrace those opportunities, they need to feel secure about how they are doing right now. And they need to feel secure about their futures, and I would say even particularly about their children's futures. And so that's why I think that sort of social, Dan, um, David called it social license, that sort of social license, it starts with domestic economic policies that are very, very far from the traditional trade agenda. But you have to connect the two. Um, and then, um, Andrew asked about um, multinationals, um, and in particular, I think you talked especially about tax. Um, I think that's a great point. Um, and again, this is not a classic element of the trade agenda, 
but something that I think we collectively as you know, is it G20 countries, is it OECD countries, I'm not sure. Um, if we want to maintain a national tax base sufficient for funding these kinds of supporting the middle class policies, you're going to need OECD level or G20 level action to prevent a race to the bottom on taxes and jurisdiction shopping. Um, that's absolutely clear, and Canada very much supports those efforts. I think that's possible, but that's another reason why we need some, you know, I think this probably won't be a multilateral one. I think it's more plurilateral, but we really do need to take plurilateral action there. And I think we need to say to companies, um, you know, because I very often have companies um, that will say to me, oh, I'm so worried about this backlash against globalization. It's so terrible. What can we do about it? One of the things that I like to say is, you can pay your taxes. That will be very helpful. <laughs> yes, it would also be helpful if we weren't uh, all lowering them uh, in a race to the bottom. I will take, are you okay to take a few more? Yeah, I, we can do one more round, right? All right. Um, right there with the handbag. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. I would say also in Ukrainian, дякую, because I'm from Ukraine originally. I'm a PhD student here in International Relations Department, and I look at um, politics of trade, especially in the 1930s. I wanted to ask you if politics of trade plays a special role in your kind of day-to-day, -day, because you seem it to sound quite on track, but I think there are so, so many news about NAFTA, for example, being questioned, and the statistics say that one in four Canadians is not happy with it. Then, for sure, there is the creation of new Department of International Trade under Dr. Liam Fox, which is very free news, fresh news, so to say, and um, uh, probably they will be looking to establish contact with you or the other way around. And uh, there is a lot of change going on, so to say, and Brexit itself is a huge change. So it doesn't seem to me that it's kind of, you know, very seamless and very quiet. And on the top of it, you have a trade a watch, for example, uh, statistics that trade is found to be quite stagnant from January 2015. So in this kind of, you know, and rising protectionism, so with all these kind of you know, things happening, I would like to ask you maybe to, to say something about how you experience the politics of trade and all these challenges. Okay, jak vy nazywajtesz? Jak was zwate? Jak was? Zwate Oksana. Oksana, dziękuję. Okay, at the top, yeah. Hi, my name is Pete. I'm from the uh, University of Chicago studying econ. And I have a question regarding... Um, climate change and trade. So in the context of the Keystone XL pipeline that Obama shut down in 2015 and just coal exports in general, I'm wondering as foreign trade minister, kind of where do you stand on this balance between, you know, energy exports, obviously Canada having a strong position, and climate change? Okay, and what was your name? Uh, Pete. Pete. Okay, right there. So, Andrew Smith, uh, hopefully a relatively straightforward uh, question about um, trade negotiations. Uh, obviously, one of the big deals for the UK is how long does it take to negotiate a trade deal? And so maybe you could tell us about um, Ukraine or some other ones. And what sort of uh, personnel do you need? Because one of the issues is, do we actually have enough people to negotiate 200 different trade deals in five minutes? <laughs> 
Um, okay, those are great questions. Oksano, um, uh, duzhi Great question. Uh, and uh, we were very glad to sign a free trade agreement with Ukraine on Monday. Um, uh, we are going to be working very hard to get that ratified quickly in Canada. And President Poroshenko and Prime Minister Groisman and also the Speaker of Parliament, Andriy Parubi, all told us they would work hard to get it ratified soon in um, Ukraine. So that's one little piece of trade. Good news. On the politics of trade, look, I didn't want in any way to leave an impression that everything is hunky-dory in Canada on the trade front and that there are no politics of trade. That's why I made my let's not be smug point. Um, I, one of the things um, that one of the trade agreements uh, that is being debated in Canada right now is the TPP. And what we believe very strongly as a government, and I, I didn't emphasize this, I just didn't have time to talk about everything, but um, we believe very much uh, that sunlight is the best disinfectant and that real public discussion is the way to empower people and get them to feel really part of the, you know, people will only feel like they're part of the conversation if they're part of the conversation. So on TPP, whose negotiations were concluded in the midst of our election campaign, we feel we need a national discussion which hadn't happened before. And I have been, our trade committee has been traveling the country uh, holding open mic sessions where people can come and say what they think. Um, I've done, I don't know, we keep a list of how many consultations I've personally done. Vincent, est-ce que tu te souviens? Me personally or our department? So we've done 250, I've done maybe 60, um, including most recently some open mic town halls in Toronto and Montreal. And emotions are high at those town halls, and it was sort of groups, probably more people than here, um, and we made a point of saying anyone who wants to speak can. They lasted for a very long time. People sang songs. People read poems. It was a very emotional experience, I, and that's why I, you know, that experience is part of the reason that I really believe trade policy kind of can't be left to the trade negotiation experts with due respect to all you academic experts. Um, it, it's, you know, it's, it, it is part <laughs> now of a bigger public conversation around globalization. So that is for sure an issue and it's a conversation. And I really believe, as I said, that speaking now, I'm Canada's trade minister, so I'm speaking for Canada, we need to trade. Um, as a country, we can't survive without being a trading nation. And so I think a core responsibility of our government and of me as trade minister is to be sure we have in place a set of policies that I think go far beyond a specific trade agenda to be sure that Canadians are comfortable being a trading nation. Um, uh, Pete asked about climate change and trade. Um, it is a really important, essential issue. Um, one of the first steps our government took upon forming government, um, we formed government at the beginning of November. Um, the Paris Conference on Climate Change you know, was upon us almost instantly. 
Um, and for people who follow those things, you will have seen Canada took a much strong, you know, we went from being a climate zero to a climate hero. We took a very strong position there, and we mean it. Uh, 80% of Canadians already, you know, we had 10 years of a government uh, that did not act on climate change. So when the federal government didn't, a lot of Canadian provinces started acting themselves. We currently have a situation in Canada where 80% of Canadians live in provinces that have a price on carbon. That is really significant. A big, the political change in Alberta has been a big contributor, and Alberta has set, has set in place a very ambitious policy. Our government is working very hard to secure a national agreement because this is an area where, and again, referring back to Europe and federalism, we have our own federal uh, politics that has to be negotiated, but we are working hard to get a federal-provincial agreement on climate change, which would set for the whole country a price on carbon. That is really important, and I think we're going to get there. Um, I think I'll leave there. there. Um, and then Andrew, where was Andrew? Right there. Um, asked about how long and how many trade negotiators it takes. Um, I can just speak from the Canadian experience. Um, Colin, one of our trade negotiators, is here. Um, so I'm going to say, and don't blush too much, Colin, I think we have an outstanding trade negotiators in Canada. Um, it is a real area of focus and specialization in our government um, because we're a pretty small country and we trade with some really big countries, first of all the U.S., so we have to be good to survive. Um, and so we have devoted a lot of resources at the federal level to having good, experienced negotiators. Our negotiators do get job offers from other countries. Um, uh, the EU actually tried to hire Steve Verhuel, our CETA negotiator, um, for their TTIP negotiations because they thought, as a Canadian, he knew the Americans. Uh, Steve turned them down. Our Canadian negotiators are not on the market for... <laughs> Uh, Minister Fox, um, but it takes a lot of them, um, and trade agreements do take a long time. Um, they are really complicated. Uh, you know, um, how many pages is CETA? 2,000? It's 1,600, so two I said 2,000, 1,600 pages. Um, and each one of those clauses says something that has real economic impact. A long time. <laughs> I can only speak to the Canadian experience and how we do it and how it goes for us. We have our own complexities too. You know, with CETA, one of the things um, that I think has made CETA a particularly powerful agreement is that the Canadian provinces, um, led by Quebec, um, took a real interest in and involvement in the agreement. Um, and so... For us, it included also negotiations with the provinces. But um, CETA has taken seven years so far. So CETA is seven years and counting for us. A long time, in other words. Anyway, we've um, come to the end of, of this talk. I'd like to thank uh, Christia for, first of all, giving a wonderful, um, almost inspiring, well, actually inspiring uh, uh, talk. And uh, 
ta- and answering so many questions at such a length. It's very unusual to get such lovely frankness from a politician. Uh oh, I'm going to be in trouble. Oh, <laughs> That's my chief of staff right there. He's not looking too happy. Um, you know, openness, shall we say, from a, from a politician. Even though I know you don't uh, quite uh, want to make that transition, perhaps to that um, that identity. But anyway, thank you uh, very much. Very much appreciated. And we hope you will come back to the LSE someday and give us another another talk somewhat soon. Thank you.